A word of caution for our listeners. There are details of a murder-suicide in this episode that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised for anyone over the age of 13. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a short, bonus, mini-episode of Missing in the Carolinas. I'm hard at work on the next full-length episode, but in the meantime, I wanted to share with you a little bonus to tide you over until next week. I do a lot of research into true crime cases and mysteries, specifically those involving North and South Carolina, but they don't always fit into the format of my podcast, and I know not everyone is familiar with my blog. Today I pulled two mysteries from my files to share with you. One involves a rumored female serial killer from South Carolina, and the other is a mysterious death that happened in the area I live in, and this death is one that I still can't wrap my head around. So until next week, enjoy this bonus, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you'll be first to know when the next episode drops next week. I visited Charleston, South Carolina last fall, and while I was there, I picked up a few books about rumored hauntings and crimes from the history of the state. One of the stories I found most intriguing was that of Lavinia Fisher. I noticed that the company I used to take a ghost tour of Charleston, Bulldog Tours, is kicking off their annual Lavinia Fisher weekend, so I thought you might like to hear this story if you're not familiar with it. First, was South Carolina's Lavinia Fisher really a murderess? She was young, beautiful, beguiling, and liked to poison the guests at her boarding house in Charleston with oleander tea. For centuries, legend had it that Lavinia Fisher was one of America's first female serial killers. But have the misdeeds of Mrs. Fisher been greatly embellished over time? If you take a tour of Charleston's Old City Jail, you can be sure to hear tales of the time period during which Lavinia Fisher and her husband John were imprisoned there. Author Patty A. Wilson's book, Cursed in the Carolinas, Stories of the Damned, shares some of the enduring stories about the Fishers that have been an integral part of Charleston's history throughout the years. Lavinia was born in Maine in 1793 and moved to Charleston after she married her husband, John. The two operated a boarding house right outside of the city, known as the Six Mile Wayfarer House. The home sat on a piece of property that is now home to a defunct naval hospital. Supposedly, the Fishers began working with a group of highwaymen who robbed travelers passing through on their way to sell hides, cotton, tobacco, and other goods. The Fishers' home was one of several boarding houses set up along a stretch of highway that is now known as Meeting Street. Once they sold their goods, the travelers would take that same route back home. The prevailing narrative that has persisted in South Carolina history is that Lavinia would sweetly entertain her guests, feed them a home-cooked meal, poison them with a warm cup of tea, and then leave her husband to rob, murder, and butcher the guests, disposing of their bodies in the cellar. Cursed in the Carolinas recounts articles published in the Post and Courier circa 1819 that told of two separate men who were attacked by the robbery gang, including Lavinia Fisher, barely escaping with their lives. The men reported the attacks to the authorities, further cementing the tales of Lavinia being a vile and violent young woman. John and Lavinia were eventually arrested for highway robbery and scheduled to be hanged, 
because their crime was considered a capital offense at the time. Their attorney requested a rehearing, and they were held at the jail for an entire year while they waited. The Fishers attempted to escape with two other men one night, but the makeshift rope they had created fell to the ground before Lavinia could use it. Not wanting to leave his wife behind, John surrendered and went back to the jail. The Fishers were denied the right to a new trial and taken to a scaffold that was set up at the edge of the city on February 18, 1820. According to reports from the people who were there, John was contrite, but Lavinia loudly proclaimed her innocence, begged for mercy from the crowd, stomped her feet, and cursed the governor. In Cursed in the Carolinas, Wilson recounted Lavinia's last words to be, If any of you have a message for the devil, say it now, for I shall see him in a moment. In 2010, a retired police detective named Bruce Orr set out to explore the true story behind the Fisher's conviction. He had grown up reading about Lavinia and John and wasn't so sure of all the stories that the couple murdered men, butchered them, and buried them beneath the house. He focused much of the research for his book, Six Miles to Charleston, The True Story of John and Lavinia Fisher, on the investigative work of another reporter named Kitty Ravenel from the 1940s. Orr couldn't find any evidence of Lavinia and John committing any of the crimes they were accused of, and instead surmised that they were likely convicted due to the corruption of politicians. At the time, then-Governor John Geddes really wanted to procure government funds that would establish a naval base to be built in Charleston, as President James Monroe had visited Charleston in a tour of other port cities. That base didn't actually materialize for another 80 years after that visit because President Monroe didn't think Charleston was a good site for the base. If that were the case, the stories of Lavinia haunting the old city jail make sense. If she and her husband were innocent and convicted merely as a way to seize the land for their boarding house, then Lavinia may be one very angry spirit indeed. Second in this bonus episode is the mystery of how a young woman and UNC Charlotte student named Irina Yarmolenko died in 2008. I remember hearing the story on the news when it first happened, back in May of that year. Irina Yarmolenko, also known as Ira to her friends, had immigrated to the United States from Ukraine with her family when she was a child. At the time of her death, she was a young 20-year-old college student at UNC Charlotte who was planning to move a few hours away to Chapel Hill to transfer to school there. According to reports, she started her day visiting a bank, dropping off a bag of donations at a nearby Goodwill, and visiting a local coffee shop she had worked at to say goodbye to her coworkers. From there, it appears she drove about 12 miles away to the Catawba River in nearby Belmont. Video surveillance from the local YMCA showed Ira's blue car passing by around 11.09 a.m., but due to grainy footage, you couldn't tell if she was the only one in the car at that point. Speculation at the time was that Ira loved the outdoors and may have been heading out there to take some photographs. She accessed the riverfront on a small dirt road located next to a YMCA. Less than two hours later, her lifeless body would be found on the bank of the river. 
That same morning, two men, cousins Mark Carver and Neil Casada, were fishing just around the bend from where Ira was found. The men were locals who had been fishing at Catawba their entire lives. Both Carver and Casada had four children, were former mill workers, and neither were working at the time due to physical disabilities. Casada had heart problems and couldn't walk long distances due to shortness of breath, and Carver couldn't grasp items very well due to numerous surgeries he'd had for carpal tunnel syndrome. They enjoyed fishing as a reprieve. At around 1 p.m., two people on jet skis noticed what looked like a car almost submerged in the water, crunched against a tree stump. The driver's side door was open, and a young woman lay on her back nearby, cords knotted around her neck. It was Ira Yarmolenko. The couple on jet skis were stunned and called 911, while Carver and Casada continued fishing about a football field length away, unaware of the commotion on the banks of the river. They had been there since around 11.30 that morning. Ira had died of ligature strangulation, and two of the cords on her neck came from items found in her car, a cord found in her hoodie, and a ribbon that came from a tote bag that was tied in a bow around her neck. There was also a bungee cord included in the knots. Investigators concluded she had not been robbed. They talked to everyone in the area of the riverbank that day, including Casada and Carver. Both men said they hadn't heard or seen anything unusual. They offered up their fishing licenses to the police during the conversation. The men eventually went to the police station for interviews and continued denying involvement in the murder. However, seven months after Ira's death, the two men were arrested. Authorities claimed their DNA had been found on the outside of Ira's car. They continued to proclaim their innocence. The men were eventually released to house arrest to await trial. Casada never made it. He passed away from a heart attack the day before his trial was to start. Carver's trial began in March 2011. He was convicted of Ira's murder on March 21, 2011. This case is baffling to me. Based on the evidence of touch DNA of the men being found on the car, I tend to think there could have been some type of transference involved. What motive would the two men have had to kill Ira? And were they even physically capable of doing so? There is also a suicide theory floating around. People think Ira tied the ligatures around her own neck and then put her car into neutral in an attempt to plunge it into the river. But for some reason, she ended up on her back, in the mud, on the riverbank. There was also DNA found on one of the cords on her neck that has never been identified. Based on some of the questionable evidence, an attorney with the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence lobbied to get Carver a new trial. He was granted one and had his conviction overturned in June 2011. There is currently no guarantee that he will have a second trial given a lack of physical evidence in this case. This is a case that kept the media riveted. NBC's Dateline produced an episode titled Mystery on the Catawba, and the Charlotte Observer also did a deep dive into the case in a six-part series titled Death by the River. Do I think Carver and Casada are guilty? I think it's highly unlikely, but I also think there may be a murderer out there who has yet to be punished for this crime. 
If you want to learn more about the theory that this was actually a suicide and not a death, there is a website called freemarkcarver.com you can visit for more information. This brings us to the conclusion of this bonus episode. Stay tuned for next week, where I'll be discussing missing persons cases from the Carolinas that have been featured on another popular true crime series. Thank you for listening. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing by Mia Robertson.